And welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Will Button. Hey, everyone. How's it going? We also have Jeffrey Groman. Hey, how are you doing? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're talking to Ian Iberg. Ian, do you want to say hello and just give people a quick uh, introduction to who you are and why you're famous? <laughs> well, I, I don't know about famous, but yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just a friendly local uh, hacker working on this technology called Unikernels, which I uh, guess we're going to kind of dive into a little bit today. But. Yeah, absolutely. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So uh, I think we kind of got started either with a definition or a history lesson. Which way should we go here? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think a quick little definition because, you know, the term has been kind of tossed around on mm -hmm. the socials and so forth, but maybe not everybody really understands what exactly it is. You know, unikernels at the end of the day are just a way of running one and only one application as a virtual machine. So when, when we say VM, we're really talking about VMs um, on the public cloud. So in versus booting up something like Linux and running it on Amazon, then running your application on top, we just push that application out as is. And that's the only thing that's running. Gotcha. So now for the history lesson. So yeah, uh, which which kind of begs the question of like, why the hell are you guys doing this? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so so yeah, so the year is 2021. We all survived last year, thankfully, uh, some of us. Uh, and we're still using systems that were designed about 50 years ago. So we're really talking about Linux here when it comes to server-side applications. Not to date any of us, but Linux was released in 91 came out on probably a 286 was what Linus was working on. This predates VMware by about 10 years. It predates uh, EC2 by about 15 years. And even when it came out in 91, that was still 20 years after Unix coming out in 1969. So the design of, of Unix itself, which Linux still very much uses, is, is roughly 50 years old now. But if we go back to 1969 and we look at the machines that they were using, like the PDP-7, the PDP-11, machines like that, those machines took up entire walls. They cost a half a million dollars a pop. So that's, that's why they had these characteristics that you find in Unix, you know, these ideas of multiple users, multiple programs, all running on the same machine. And that's very, very different than how we deploy software today in, in 2021. Even the smallest of companies have software such as their database that doesn't even fit on one server anymore. And so this, this idea of having an operating system running many different programs on one server 
it doesn't it doesn't really fit to reality anymore. And so that's that's one of the reasons why um, why we're looking at Unigernals to kind of uh, run our software today. So the thought process there is to use uh, Unikernel instead of launching a, a virtual machine or perhaps replacing the container type process with a Unikernel? Yeah, because like, so if, if, you're, if you're an engineer at some sort of high growth tech, tech company like a Uber, Airbnb, something like that, they don't just have one database server. They don't even have five. They have like thousands of database servers. And so, you know, today, a lot of engineers, they literally have to deploy thousands of operating systems and then put the applications on top and manage all of that stuff, even though they're probably already in a virtualized environment, whether they're on the public cloud or whether they have their own data centers, it doesn't really matter. They're probably already virtualized. And so it's like, why are we running two layers of Linux here? And we don't really want to manage that. I mean, the first thing they do when they hop into the instance is sudo su their way up. It's just more complexity of management than we really need or want. But when you replace it with this kind of unikernel style infrastructure, we find that a lot of the applications we deploy, they run a lot faster, they run a lot safer, and it, it just makes things a lot more simpler to, to deal with. So I think you've answered my question, but I guess just, just maybe spell it out. So it sounds like there's a couple of compelling reasons, right? Because that was going to be my first question is, what compels me to move into this? Because it's anytime we're talking about a new technology, that means... I've got to, to learn it and yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I probably, you know, as you pointed out, the, the number of applications and systems and stuff that we run and manage grows and, and grows quickly, which means I've got to hire for that too. And, and let's face it, I mean, hiring a, a Linux uh, sysadmin is, you know, or a DevOps guy that, or gal that knows Linux isn't that hard, but. But if I start talking about does your skill set include unikernels, I don't know. Maybe maybe that subset of people who have that skill set um, shrinks. So it sounds like the compelling reason to do this though is that it does ease my management. Which so um, you know that might make it more compelling for me to to take on a new technology if managing the you know the, just the stuff that I have to manage if that gets simpler then that's compelling. But you also said that there's some performance increases as well, which also might mean that maybe that costs me less in the cloud. Maybe that means that I can run fewer things out there in the cloud because of it. But maybe you can sort of talk us through like, so for any of us, and I'll put myself into that box who has never had any experience running a unikernel, like what does that mean? Is there an actual OS to the unikernel or is it really sort of bare bones and literally just an application like what is it if i've got that linux or unix background what is that how does that look when i'm managing an application running on a unikernel right yeah so good question and honestly i can sit here and explain it on the call which which i will try but until you actually run one of these things you're probably still going to be confused <laughs> so i'll just put that out there but Fair enough. anyways what what we do is we take your application say i'm writing a i have a go web server and, and I have this binary. And typically what I might do is I might go to Amazon. I might go to Google. I'll use something like Terraform or Chef or Kubernetes or whatever. You know, um, I install it, but it's sitting there on, on Linux running, running there. What we do instead with the Unikernel is we create an AMI out of that application, this Go web server. 
on every single time you hit that deploy button, a new AMI is made. It rolls out as a new virtual machine. And when it boots up, your application, that Go web server, is the only thing that's running. There is no Linux inside. There's no Kubernetes inside. There's no containers. There's none of that stuff. It's literally just your Go web server. And there's no... To, to dive further into it, there's no concept of users. You can't log into these things. It'd be like logging into your application. There's no SSH. There's no shell. There's, there's a complete lack of this typical user land that you're going to find on a Ubuntu or a Debian or something like that. If you do like a tree or you look at the file system, you might find 10 files. <laughs> so, so there's like literally nothing there. Now you compare that to Ubuntu instance. I go to Amazon, boot up a Ubuntu. I don't do anything with it. I just boot it up. There's probably going to be a hundred different programs running, a half a dozen interpreters, a thousand different libraries, tens of users all associated with their different daemons. So, so there's a lot of stuff there. And containers kind of come in and try to like slim this down, but they still share the same kernel on top. And so it's, it's a little bit illusionary there. But, but yeah, the, the, the unikernel is kind of bare bones. Now, you, you asked one question, which confuses a lot of people. And they're like, is there an underlying operating system? A lot of people think there's like no operating system. That couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff the operating system does for you, even if it's just the unikernel system. It, there's there's a, just a lot of stuff going on. And so like, like Nano is the one that we work on. It's like 30,000 lines of code. But compare that to Linux, which is like 30 million lines of code. So it's like less than a tenth of a percent. There, there's lots of reasons why that is. Like if you look at Linux, about half the code base is pure drivers. Well, you ask, you wonder why. It's because it runs on real metal. That's one huge reason why. They have to support 30 different disk drivers and network drivers and all this sort of stuff. When we deploy unikernels, they only deploy as VMs. And so we only have to support a handful of virtual drivers. The network, the disk, a clock, that's about it. Yeah. So we carve out a lot of that. The whole lack of users, the lack of multiple processes, that's a non-trivial amount of code that is not present. So that's kind of how it decreases in size. Cool. And what, what's the, how does, I guess, cloud support work? I mean, are, are all the cloud vendors like the AWSs, the Azures, the GCPs, are they all on board with this and supporting it and that sort of thing? Or you end up having to sort of shim your way into that, or what does that look like? Yeah, no, we uh, we definitely had to shim our way into it. <laughs> so yeah, pre- pretty much every time the so the open source project, uh, the kernel has been alive for about two years in its open source form, and we started out with Google Cloud because Google's built on KVM. It was very easy to support in that respect. The first instance we supported on Amazon was running on Zen, so we had to add some Zen stuff. You know, Azure, we had to support Hyper-V. Uh, for vSphere, we had to support ESX. So whenever we tackled a new cloud or a new hypervisor, we have to add in the appropriate drivers and so forth. Now, today, Nanos can run on everything that's popular out there, all the major cloud providers, all the major hypervisors. So, so that support's there now. And uh, I mean, it, it, it runs well on all of them now, too. So Nice. But yeah, it's I mean it's it's just like bringing a new operating system on on board. But at the end of the day, you know, it's you have the same primitives, it's the same virtual NIC, same VM, all that good stuff. So if there's like no sort of user interaction, right? I'm not 
I'm not logging in and pseudoing myself my way around and that sort of thing. How do like basic admin tasks, like just patch management, and if I want to tweak, you know, performance memory, that's sort of, how, how does that work? How does that happen? Yeah, good question. So, so patch management, it kind of depends on the code base you're working in. So if we use the Go example, you might statically compile that to where it's just a single binary. And if you want to update a library, you just you push out and do update. But say you're working in something like Python or Ruby, generally speaking, people working in interpreted languages like that, they're not going to sit there and compile their own Python package or their own node package. And so we, we provide packages for people, although you're welcome to create your own too. And so inside that package, you'll have the, the different libraries that you might need to be linked into the interpreter. So if you're, uh, if you're creating the next, uh, I don't know, Instagram, maybe you have Libin, uh, Image Magic linked in. And so, so there's that. That's how you do patch management. In terms of metrics, like your memory and so, so forth, pretty much use the exact same tooling that you're using today. So like Prometheus, for instance, you can export your metrics as you see fit. You know, a lot of the APM tooling, like New Relic and Datadog and stuff like that tends to work out of the box. But uh, but yeah, in general, the focus is on like instrumenting and, and measuring the metrics that you care about and then exporting them. And if you don't care about them, you don't care about them. Right. Logging, ship it out through syslog. You can also keep it local and pipe it out through a serial interface. But that's really only an option for people who don't really care too much about it because <laughs> so, it's slow. But that's also an option as well. So, okay. But yeah, I, in general, it's it's better to think of these not... The thing is, it's, it's always a question of like, is it an application or is it an operating system? And it's kind of swinging back and forth between the two. And so just as you wouldn't like SSH into your application, you're not going to SSH into that. You know, some some comparables out there would be like Heroku, the serverless offerings, to some degree, uh, Kubernetes and so forth. But there are these, a lot of the platform offerings out there, That's that's kind of a comparable that you can think of it as just in terms of like, what is what is there? Right. And where do you see, I guess, the, the most traction today, you know, for Unikernels? Yeah, I mean, so, some people come from the performance aspect. We, uh, we can run things like go and rest web servers twice as fast on Google, three times as fast on Amazon. We're not doing any magic there. That's just the architecture of, of the application at play. Uh, again, comparing to your Ubuntu or something like that. But uh, so there's that. But one, two things that have surprised us was one was the security compliance stuff. So think if you're a payment processor, you have to comply to PCI compliance and all this sort of stuff. And generally, that means you're given this big sheet of like, do you rotate passwords? Do you audit when the user does RMRF? Do you, <laughs> do, you do all this stuff? And when you look at these checklists, like a lot of that goes out the window because it just doesn't even exist. So it makes the compliance stuff way easier to deal with. So that was one thing that we didn't even know about until um, people started using it. And then the other thing is just the simplicity. So ops.city and nanos.org are both the, the open source websites that we have. They're both Go Unikernels running on Google right now. You can deploy those in about two commands, one to build the image, and that's basically instantaneous. And then one to you know actually shove it up and create the image. That's a that's another operation. 
but you can do both of those in about 20 seconds. So you can go from your laptop to a live production website in about 20 seconds. So that just kind of shows you how simple it can be in terms of some of the complexity that's out there today. So one of the things I was thinking about whenever we first started having this podcast was wondering how this integrates with existing things like like existing file systems and different things like that. But it sounds like this is all just already working with whatever file systems we're currently using and like the different things that we're external resources we're accustomed to are built in and ready to go. Yeah. So you know, basically going back to the the point I made about there being many different union kernels out there, the what we've done is we've kind of landed in what we call the POSIX compliant camp. So that includes like OSV and Rumpfron and um, things of that nature. Um, we're definitely in that camp. And, and what that really means is loosely, if it runs on Linux, it, it can run as this as well. You give us an ELF, which is the native Linux format, we can just load it up and run it. So we, so we have the same sort of uh, syscall interface. So all your file system uh, related stuff, I mean, it just, it, it works as you would expect it to, basically. That's awesome. There's, there's some earlier projects out there that were focused on immutability and kind of more um, academically oriented ideals. But when you apply it to kind of real world workloads, it's kind of like, what do you mean I don't have a file system? <laughs> I have a database that needs to write to one. <laughs> so, so there's there's a lot of things like that that you know we've we've just kind of looked at through kind of like a pragmatic viewpoint. So I I wouldn't say we're like nowhere even close to the purest unikernel camp at all. Even though they there's lots of great ideas there, but baby steps, I think. So yeah, for sure. One of the other things I heard you mention there was Whenever we were talking about the metrics and the logging, logging and stuff like that, it seems like that would be potentially a shift for someone looking to embrace unikernels. And that, and when building your application, you've got to think really think through what metrics and logs you want, and make sure that you're pushing those out to somewhere else because there's no other way to get those right. Yeah, that that is something that is something that you should be aware of when when you're working with these things. It's uh. If you care about heap allocations or GC count or whatever, you definitely want to like instrument your application. What, what's great is like it's it's pretty easy to to um, deploy these things and add those metrics as as you need. But it's not something that you want to you, you want to push something out and just forget about. <laughs> so, right. But that's that's all in the life of a developer. You know, you run into problems, you have to debug them and fix them, and then push out changes. So. I've got all the all the whiskey bottles and stuff to. <laughs> so. so just to jump back for a, a moment about you know you, you mentioned that it's POSIX compliant. So is the unikernel completely separate kernel from the Linux kernel, or because at first I, I got the impression that maybe it was just you know sort of like the scaled down version of the existing Linux kernel and sort of just whittling out all of those libraries and all that stuff that you just don't need, but was this a, a kernel that was developed from sort of from scratch that is just POSIX compliant? Yeah, so kind of two things there. I might have used the word compliant. I would I would probably say it's uh, compatible because <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff that yeah. technically you should have like users and all this stuff, which this definitely does not have. Um, <laughs> so okay. so there's things like that. But yeah, in general, all the important 
services calls and so forth, you'll find there. And to answer the second question, yeah, it's a, it's a kernel running from the ground up from the bootloader all the way up. It's one thing that we get asked about from time to time. They're like, why couldn't you just make an Alpine Linux and put like a heavy set comp on it and then call it a day? And, and you've got to realize that even something like a Alpine, it still has a lot of these things that we, we didn't want in there, that, that user land, the, the multiple process, like all this other stuff. And it's not something where you would go in and build a custom kernel, like a custom Linux kernel either, because they don't give you those options to, uh, to cut out. But you, you can't just like if def it either, because if we lean into something like multiple process support, that touches a lot of code in the kernel. Yeah. That touches IPC, that touches scheduling, that touches access rights, that touches a lot of stuff. It's not something you can just patch out. Right. And so that's why we kind of went down the long, arduous path of writing the kernel from, from the ground up. So No, that makes sense. So you can't just surgically remove those pieces. That's like that's basically the whole brainstem right there of, of the uh, Linux kernel, Unix kernel. So uh, right. that makes a lot more sense. And it almost sounds like, I guess, some of the benefit you get is that there's not a lot of administration on a, right. on a Unicurl, right? I mean, it's really, like you said, it's more about running your application than it is about having to manage the system. And I think that's why, where you started with this. We're saying a lot of the advantage of moving to Unikernel is that it's just so much easier to manage. And so if you think about like building out your DevOps team, there's a lot less to focus on on the underlying system. And you're a lot more, you know, you can sort of keep your focus on just the application. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like uh, on Linux systems, you get a pager duty, you wake up and you got to go figure out, okay, which processes opening up all these connections, I'm going to pull out the LS off and try to figure out which process it is because I don't know which one it is. And on a unikernel, you exactly which one it is. <laughs> or like, I can't SSH into the server because the disk is so filled up with some log rotation gone mad. And you got to figure that out. And it's, it, there's, when you, when you start thinking about it, like a lot of these problems are because there's so much stuff like on these systems to begin with. That, that you have to deal with. Just think about how Terraform works, for instance. Terraform's whole idea is, is that we're going to configure a system. We're going to install this, all this stuff. and We're going to configure it. We're going to make a nice little template, like a golden template. And then we're going to store that in version control so nobody can screw with it. <laughs> or if they do, we at least have like the copy we like. And that's how we're going to build our systems. But... When you think about it with with the unikernel, I mean, it's literally just that application and whatever that application actually needs. It doesn't need all the other stuff that comes with it. So that's yeah, it's 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 kind of like focusing on what you actually need versus um, trying to yank stuff out of the bathtub or the kitchen sink. And then, I mean, from my perspective, so I, I I'm pretty focused on the security side. So obviously, that also makes the security of the underlying OS so much more, so much simpler. And you said, you know, the PCI example, but certainly even if we don't focus on compliance, you know, just across the board of security, I mean, there's just a lot less attack surface. So that's, I also come from the security world and we didn't invent this technology. This is an idea that's been stuck in academia forever, but that's precisely what attracted me to, to the tech was I was like, wow, you know, like the whole single process model by, by the way, I've said that a couple of times. 
that's not to imply that we don't support multiple threads. You can have as many threads as, as you have hardware available. But, but yeah, the single process model, what that means from an attacker's perspective is if I put on my black hat and I'm trying to break into your server, when I'm using an exploit or I found some vulnerability in your software, that's just like, like the key to the server. That's, that's the door or the window to your house is what it is. Once I'm on the server, I've come for, I've come for your, uh, your guns, your jewels, your flat screen TVs, all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's the exact same thing on the server. <laughs> like I want to run my SQL dump against the database. I want to install a crypto miner and uh, mine illicit cryptocurrency. It always, always, always involves running other software. Always, without fail. And usually it's not just like one program. Usually it's a chain of like 20 or 30 different programs. Or maybe you even yank down a compiler and you have to compile another program where you're like, it, there's all this stuff that goes on. And when you just remove that incentive, you remove that capability, it becomes insanely difficult because now you're like, okay, well, I have to create a MySQL client out of like ROP gadgets. I really have not seen a MySQL client written out of ROP gadgets before. And so that's kind of the level of difficulty that it comes to. So there's, that's, that to me is like the biggest security advantage of these things. But yeah, the attack surface, that's something that we've actually measured. And you can, you know, we kind of briefly talked about that. The thousands of libraries versus maybe five libraries, the thousands of binaries versus one, the tens of users versus zero. Yeah, there's there's lots of different ways to kind of, kind of measure that, but that's there. And a lot of people are wondering, well, do you still have all the same Linux style protections like ASLR and Exec and all that stuff? All that stuff still exists. So we still have the exact same protections, but uh, but we can kind of go even deeper on it. Right. So, right. So how, Charles, you've been how, really quiet. And I know you're thinking, how do I run my Ruby code on a Unikernel? Exactly. Well, yeah, I was actually thinking that. I mean, I've used platform as a service like Heroku or uh, DigitalOcean app platform. I've just set up a, a Linux server and, you know, just kind of gone for broke with it. But yeah, I mean, I'm liking, okay, you know, I only have on it what I need and it just does what it does, right? And I don't have to SSH into it or anything or, you know, manage any of that stuff. And so that sounds easy, except, yeah, Rails has to compile some assets with Webpack, it's got to do some other stuff. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, how would I put something like Rails on the Unicron? Right. This is, this is a really interesting question because I keep on using the examples of these compiled languages like Go and Rust and Java stuff. So your scripting language is... interpreted. Yeah. Yeah, all the interpreted languages are a little bit different. Ruby, Python, Node, all these guys. The actual elf that we're executing is the interpreter itself. But the interpreter is loading up your, your code, your RB files and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And so we still create the disk image, but in terms of scaling, that's where it becomes different because your goes and your rust and things like that have access to uh, native threads. But all the Rubies and Pythons and stuff, they're inherently single process, single thread to begin with. And so uh, traditionally, the way we would scale those is we spin up an Nginx or a proxy mm -hmm. or an ELB or some sort of load balancer in front. And then it just load balances across half a dozen app servers or whatever you, know, you right. need. So we do the exact same thing in unikernels, except each of those app servers become individual instances. That's, that's basically the difference there. 
So, you know, instead of spinning up like five app servers on the exact same server and then put that Nginx in front where it just round robins off, we, we have the proxy in front on its own instance. And then each of those app servers becomes an instance. And that's, that's how that works. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So effectively, then for all of the rest of the kind of build process and stuff, you would actually just build out the, the all the stuff that goes on the hard drive to begin with, right? So you've pre-compiled your assets, which is generally what we do anyway. And then for the rest of it, yeah, you just you stick. The yeah, Ruby so code that on would that become yeah. part of your like CI CD step. Yeah, um, you can do that locally, or if you have your Jenkins or whatever, that that can do that there too. So yeah, yeah, we use Jenkins at work, but for my personal stuff, yeah, I'd probably just build it on my own machine and then toss it out there. So you mentioned putting a proxy. Sorry. Okay. You mentioned putting a proxy in front of this. Is that another unikernel process, or is that just a Something like um like HA proxy or index something like that. Yeah, so you can um you can use whatever you're using currently. So whether it's a proxy or Nginx or ELB or I mean there's there's lots of different ways to skin the cat. But yeah, that would be its own instance. So that would be your you know your front end, and then it would route backwards to all your app servers right. to do that. So, but yeah, the the trick is that they just get separated amongst um, different instances. So that's that's basically how that works. Gotcha. The scaling is just spinning up more instances. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So so if you have stuff like languages that use threads, then you can scale vertically. Right. And if if you're like a single thread <coughs> type of uh, language, then you would scale horizontally. But okay. I mean, we we kind of already do that already. Yeah. Um, it's just that <clears throat> some 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 people will try to pack everything onto different servers. Which is which is kind of interesting because there's actually papers out there that talk about like there's this one called uh, a decade of wasted cores and it basically says the Linux scheduler is a piece of crap. So, so it's 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 a real question mark of whether or not we've actually been able to get more bang for our performance buck via, via that thing. Anyways, because like if you look at say say I go boot an EC2 small right now, I have basically one thread at my disposal. So if I'm running like 5, 10, 20 different processes on it, it's an illusion that they're all running at the same time. Really, this CPU is bouncing back and forth so fast between all of them that you can't, you can't really tell the difference. But if you, if you measure it, the computer, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely slowing down a lot. So it's, it's, it's always much better to be able to pin those threads to, to each process. And unit kernels basically enforce that. So and then so you know I guess one one thing like you think about like a Kubernetes or something where right to me at least it's sort of a similar idea in terms of scaling that like, you, know, you think about just sort of scaling by spinning up new new containers and then Kubernetes is sort of giving you that management infrastructure as well in the unikernels world if I start scaling by spinning up new instances what does the management look like I mean I, I know we've already talked about that management of these things is relatively simple because there's not a lot to them but if i start spinning up more of them does that get does the management overhead start to increase and if so what's the paradigm then for managing a whole bunch of these instances 
Right. So this is a this is a really cool question. And if if people are super interested, I would uh, I would tell them to um, definitely go spin up their first unicornal <laughs> after the show. But basically, what happens is if you look at where a lot of the software is getting deployed, it's going to the public cloud. So Amazon, Google, whatever. And when we deploy these to the public cloud, again, we're not spinning up a EC2 instance of Linux and installing Kubernetes on top and then installing the application on top. We're actually spinning up that instant, that application as an instance. And so it gets access to the native networking and the native storage that exists on the cloud. And when you compare that to, say, Kubernetes, they're creating underlay networks, they're creating overlay networks, they're duplicating these primitives that the cloud already gives you. The networking is duplicated, the storage is duplicated, users are duplicated. All this stuff adds performance penalties, and, and obviously you have to manage it. Now, you could use like a managed service, but if not, you have to do the management yourself, and a lot of people have fought that for the past decade. So what's, what's great about Unigirls is you don't have to deal with the networking. You don't have to deal with the storage. It's just there. You get to use it. You get an IP. You can config it to your heart's content. If you want to make it elastic, make it elastic. If you want to use IPv6, blow your brains out. Like You can do whatever you want, but the primitives are there for you to use immediately. And there's no management necessary whatsoever. So... Running a database as a unicurl is a thousand times easier than trying to stick it in something like Kubernetes. There's just no, there's nothing you really have to do. So, yeah. So, what I mean, what's the process then, right? Do you have your own AMIs on something like Amazon? And so it's just, hey, you know, this is really simple little thing. Or do you use some of their container orchestration that isn't Kubernetes? Or, I mean, how, how are you fighting that battle? Yeah. So if we take like, say we want to deploy MySQL as a unikernel, we have a package that's available through ops because we don't really expect people to compile it themselves. But you can do like a ops image create that'll create a disk image that you can take and you can you can put it on Google, you can put it on Amazon, wherever you want. So you upload it to the service with this ops image create, and then you do ops instance create. And that actually spins up a virtual machine of, of that disk image. And that disk image, that the virtual machine that gets spun up, that's completely managed by Amazon. That's managed by Google. You don't really have to do anything else. I mean, you config it, like you put in the username, password, all that good stuff to access it. But that's that's all you're doing. You're not actually managing the networking layer and the storage layer and, and all that good stuff. And and you can literally deploy these in like 20 seconds to Amazon. So that sounds really cool. I mean, it, it almost sounds too simple. <laughs> You know, I'm digging for my more questions. Like, huh? is it really that simple? It's a, it's one of those things where it's again, a, a lot of people won't really understand it until they deploy yeah. their their first instance, and they're like, oh, well, I didn't really have to do anything. <laughs> it's just right because again, there's there's this lack of there's this lack of user land. Uh, it's it it's kind of comparable to using something like a Heroku. It's kind of comparable to using a serverless platform, except that there's no vendor involved. I mean, you could take in, deploy it to Google. You can take it and deploy it to Amazon. You know, the, the only things that are getting switched out are drivers. And as of right now, those are just included. So maybe in the future, we'll have an option to exclude them. But, but literally, the exact same disk image can be deployed to either platform. So mm-hmm. there's no like 
proprietary API that you have to code against or anything like that. Right. So, so that could really be a benefit to folks who are worried about a single vendor lock-in. Right. So like one one big thing. Um, so so like a lot of companies that go around and acquire other companies, they're the companies that end up in this hybrid cloud pattern. You, you always wonder, like, who the hell adopts hybrid cloud? Those companies do. <laughs> like, they, they were on Amazon, but they bought some startup that runs on Google. And, like, they're mostly a Azure shop, but they got this hot new company that runs on this cloud platform. And so that's why they get into that situation. And we've all, like, been in the situations where it's like, man, I do not want to migrate, like, 15 of these services over to this other platform. It's just that it's, it's a bunch of mostly unnecessary work usually. And so that's that's why people get into those situations. And what's great about this is like, you really don't have to do much. I mean, you literally are setting a different target and that exact same application is getting deployed to a different cloud. So it makes that situation so much easier to deal with, in my opinion. Yeah, I also wonder if it, if it doesn't uh, incentivize some people, you know, some companies that already have data centers, right? To start to think about, do we, instead of moving stuff to the cloud, does it incentivize me to sort of build out my virtual environment? You know, sort of go back to where we were, I don't know, 10 or more years ago, where we were seeing data centers with just more virtual servers instead of physical servers, right? right? Sort of going back to that paradigm of, well, maybe I should just build out my own hypervisor because I can deploy these things really easily, no overhead, and maybe even save money from doing it in the cloud. Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, that's that's definitely like a company, company, case by case thing, in my opinion. But uh, definitely, like if you have an existing OpenStack installation, you have an existing vSphere installation, we can target both of those platforms quite easily. And what's really interesting is if you actually have control over your hardware, depending on what you're deploying, we can we can really cram in some of these VMs. We... Uh, so, so a lot of our internal apps are written in, say, Go. And we'll have these web servers that are 15, 20 megabytes big. They don't really eat that much RAM at all. But we've ran like thousands of them per, per single server. I think with actual real hardware versus the crap that we have in our office, <laughs> you, could, you, could do, you could really pack them in by quite yeah. a lot. So if you start, if you work at a bank or some other hyperscaler type of atmosphere like, like that, especially if you have that regulatory burden, that can help yeah. out a lot, um, right. for sure. So Right. I mean, I'm just thinking, I mean, a lot of my clients are, you know, are, are more like legacy clients in, in, in that the business has been right. around for several decades. And I mean, any company, any sizable company that's been around for ser- several decades has one or more data centers. And, you know, even for if... Sure. They all have some kind of a cloud footprint too, but but they're all doing some kind of virtualized servers in our data centers and you know and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it, it's just interesting because the we started this conversation talking a little bit about the history, right? And it's just interesting. Like the cycle of the history is also interesting. Like technology does does become a kinda, cycle. Kind of goes like this. <laughs> yeah, you know, as it, as it moves around, it just keeps. But yeah, does that does that cycle sort of come back? And because I, I was just reading somewhere else, I mean, I, you know, you've been hearing for the last couple of years, and we've all been hearing for the last couple of years that the the cloud, you know, the bill for people's cloud footprint has just gone way up. And at some point, 
I mean, even just from the financial standpoint, you got to look at it and say, well, if I already have a data center and I've already got the infrastructure, why wouldn't I think about, you know, maybe bringing at least some of these things in if the management is, you know, relatively easy and especially if I can pretty easily automate just how I scale up and scale down and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, when when you see those headlines like Lyft spending three hundred million over the course of like what was it three or five years? I mean, it's, it's like non serious, <laughs> non, yeah, non, non little amounts of money. So, uh, I mean, Dropbox they had that famous episode where they moved a lot of their infrastructure off the cloud, and you know, we're saying, hey, we saved seventy million a year by doing this. Right. Um, wow. So, I think I think you know, depending on the size of your organization, there's there's most definitely financial arguments to be made there. And we haven't even mentioned that uh, the buzzword edge, but you know, like I've, I've talked to grocery store chains and they've got servers in every single store that they have. And if you have a couple yeah. thousand stores spread throughout the US, I mean, how For the sure. hell do you manage that? Right. <laughs> that's, that's even worse than owning like your own data center, you it, know? So it's, it's crazy, uh, right? Because, you know, you got to have a domain controller out there and you've got to have... Yep whatever it is, like, you know, there's always going to be some kind of a file server out there and stuff like right. that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, if you can start to figure out other ways, I mean, and that's funny, like we've always talked about like things like, you know, throwing Linux out into these like edge cases and you know, using Samba or something like that. But, you know, you sort of wonder what if I, you know, just threw in an application out there and, you know, ran it on a unikernel. I mean, that's just an interesting paradigm to at least think about and explore. Cool. Sure. So one other thing that I'm wondering about, and this is something that I do with my apps on on my local machine is I usually run Docker and I have a Docker Compose and set all that stuff up. And it seems like this might actually not slow my machine down to a crawl when I have Docker running, if I had something like this running. Do you know if people are doing that kind of a thing where they're setting things up locally to run unikernels with, like we're talking about here, like my Ruby app or whatever, and I could run my... Uh, Webpack dev server on one, which is what I do anyway, right? I have my workers running on one. I have my actual web server running on another one, right? And mm-hmm. so I can kind of run stuff across the the deal and and make it work. Yeah. So so yeah. Just to clarify, I I personally don't do that, but there's there's definitely other people out there that do do that. One, I guess, one good benefit is like 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 if you're on a Mac, for instance you're going to have Docker inside of a VM to begin with, period, mm-hmm. uh, simply because it uses Linux parts. <laughs> so it's, uh, so that's, that's why like, you walk by somebody's MacBook and it, it looks like a, you know, a jet carrier taken off. They, they have half a dozen different applications all running inside of a VM that they're all compiling and spinning up at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's way less of a situation on Linux itself. It, Mac is just kind of an odd one out there. But... Uh, but yeah, it, like in terms of this, Ops, uh, the open source tool, what we've done is we orchestrate QEMU with that. And so you can run that on a Mac, you can run it in WSL, you can run it on Linux, and it's not a full-blown Linux VM, right? It's not even Linux. It's uh, it's just that application. And so it boots up within milliseconds locally. Mm-hmm. And again, all it's doing is running your app. So So yeah, it definitely uses a lot less resources. Now, when it comes to things like networking and things like that, Linux, again, you have access to like taps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. On, on Mac, we have various tricks to kind of work around that. 
but you run into the same sort of issues that you would for Docker on Mac, simply because of, of those emulation areas. Like, like for instance, most MacBooks don't have wired Ethernet. And so you can't like really bridge on a wireless. You have to, you have to do tricks. <laughs> so, but like if you target VirtualBox hypervisor, they have their own tap driver that they kind of cleverly hack together. Of course, that's going away. So there's other tricks that you have to resort to. But yeah, it's it's an option for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple times you can tell us about it, but we're not gonna believe it till we see it. What's your recommendation for like when we're done with this podcast? Where do we go and what are we doing? What's your recommended path for getting started? Yeah, if you go to one of the open source websites, it's like nanos.org, N-A-N-O-S.org. You go there and you can download ops also at ops.city. And, and basically, it's, it's like a little Go application. All it does is build an app out of whatever file you point it at. There's a, I don't know, like 100 different pre-made packages, Redis, Nginx, things like that as well, because we don't expect people to provide that themselves. But, uh, but yeah, you can download that. You can kind of do a hello world. And I would just encourage, try, try deploying one, see how long it actually takes you. I say it takes 20 seconds, but if it's your first time, it might take you a couple minutes. <laughs> so it's, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, try it out. And once you boot it up, you'll instantly understand what exactly these things are. As, as soon as you start playing around with them, you'll be like, oh, wow, okay, I can't log into it. I can't like, it's just the application running. And, you know, it's, it'll start to click after, after you run them. But yeah, a lot of people are like, is this the new Docker? Is this do I have to install Kubernetes? Like it, all those questions start going away once you once you start playing around with them. So, anything else we want to hit before we do picks? All right, let's do us some picks. Hey, folks! I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams, or becoming the top five percent of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Will, do you have some picks for us? I do. This week, my pick is just going old school with the trusty old kettlebell. So I've done CrossFit for probably 12 to 15 years now. I don't really know how. The last couple of months, I've switched my workout routine up and been doing kettlebell workouts and just have gotten excited about working out all over again because you just take this one steel ball that has a handle welded to it and you can <laughs> lift it, you can press it, you can swing it, you know, you can do get-ups and there's just no end to what you can do. So I think anyone who's wanting to work out or wanting to take their fitness to the next level, I think really that a kettlebell is all you need to do it. So that's my recommendation this week. Go buy a kettlebell. Nice. Uh, Jeffrey, what are your picks? Yeah, that's a good question. I've really been sort of dabbling a lot this week, and I've been sort of trying to figure out what should my 
what should my picks be? So with uh, Amazon Prime Day last couple of days, I've been trying to to find. I don't know if you guys if you guys have one of those. Uh, I have an old school fine multi master tool. I don't know if you guys use this for like do it yourself projects around the house. It's like just one of those tools that like comes in so handy in so many different places. It's like you know, I think they call it generically. It's the oscillating tool now. Is that the isn't that the mm-hmm. you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I have one of those. So I like the really old school one that the original, I think, from Fine. I bought it like, I don't know, well over a decade ago, probably when, when they were like first came out. It was just one of those things I needed. I think we were doing some kind of a, you know, like a remodel project where I was trying to cut out pieces of molding and that sort of thing. And just these oscillating tools are just a really great way to sort of, you know, get into a tight space and just sort of cut out like surgically, you know, sort of remove pieces and that sort of thing. So recently I've been trying to get new blades for it. And it's there's so many oscillating tools out there now that it is a challenge to find the ones that actually fit the old original. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of crazy. So I feel like I'm rambling here. And I, I guess my pick is really just the oscillating tools in general. Because from what I'm reading, I've been thinking about should I upgrade? Because you know, my old one is it's a plug-in and it's not, you know, it's not rechargeable battery, that sort of thing. But it is, it's just, it's a workhorse. Like it just, it, it's awesome. So I don't know. I'm, I I didn't see anything come up on Amazon Prime Day. I'm still stuck with my old Fine Multimaster. I'm happy I have it though. And I and I did find uh, Fine still makes blades for it. I think they just make blades that fit like universally fit all their different models. So my guess is about when I decide to move to the uh, cordless version of it, I'll probably end up with a fine also so that all the blades still work. But that is my, I guess that's my pick because I just find it, it just, uh, I was just trying to trim down my, um, my daughter got a, has a bike and the kickstand broke on it. So I got one of those aftermarket kickstands to replace it. And they come in, they're like two meters long. I'm like, ah, oh, just cut it down. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, mm-hmm. but you know, so I just cut it down to the, to the size of your bike. So I'm like cutting off like several inches <laughs> off of it and t- taking out like it, it was the hacksaw or the multi the, or the multi-master it was like not even as a no-brainer it was like they got the multi-master and two minutes later it's made a nice cut across that you know that that piece of steel so anyway long story short uh that is my pick if you guys you know if anybody out there hasn't seen one or used one i don't know that the fine's any better than anything else but the the style tool is just amazing yeah i got mine at harbor freight and i just got whatever brand they had and they are so handy because yeah, they'll cut through just about anything. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we had to cut out like stuff under the baseboard for some flooring, blah, 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 blah. Right. And yeah, you, you couldn't really fit anything grout, else under there. Right. Metal. Yeah. And so you just stick, you, you get the right end, just stick it in there and it just cuts it off. Yeah. Yep. And I've cut metal with it. I've cut, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Like you said, steel, it goes right through it. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And and I think that one of the coolest things about the tool is that it doesn't take that much, uh, it just takes a little bit of patience. It doesn't take that much mm-hmm. skill, though, to sort of make a straight cut. So even though it's a handheld tool, it's not that hard to do it and, and make a, a cut that doesn't look like you just chopped it, you know, chopped a piece of molding to bits. Yep. Anyway, that's my pick. Cool. Well, I'm going to pick Harbor Freight if we're going there because... It's a great place to get quality tools for not that expensive. Yeah, I, mean, I swear, I it costs me less every time I go there compared to like Home Depot or whatever. Yeah, and I always get better quality tools, so I'm a fan. 
Yeah. And they've got a couple of them out here where I live. So, yeah, we just drop in yeah. and get whatever we're looking for. The other picks that I have, so I've been listening to this book called Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. And it's framed as an interview with the devil, but really what he talks about is I'm the kind of the big ideas in the book so far are the use of fear, right, to control people. And I think we've seen plenty of that. Whether you think some of the stuff around COVID was warranted or not, I've heard people express all kinds of opinions. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of people did a lot of things out of fear. And I think that really illustrates where that kind of lands. And then he talks about people who just kind of drift through life, right? So they're just kind of drift drifters. I think that's what he calls them. And effectively, it's, it's these folks that don't really know what they want or where they want to end up. And so they just kind of drift through life and let, let life happen to them. And you, you're kind of hearing that it's not so much like this religious dogma book. It, it really is this discussion on how to lead a fulfilling life and how to not let these negative things kind of control where you're headed. And so anyway, I'm really enjoying it. If you've heard the name Napoleon Hill before, he wrote Think and Grow Rich, which is, I guess, less framed as a, a devil thing, but it goes right along with what you're going to pick up out of that book, which is also excellent. So I'm going to pick that. And then I watched a documentary and really enjoyed it. And so I'm going to pick it as well. And just to give it a little bit of framing before I tell you what it was, I really enjoy, like, I, I'm kind of a history junkie, to be honest, you know, in certain ways. But the other aspect of that is that the closer it gets to things that affect me now, the more interesting it is, right? And so a documentary on like the life of this person or that person, that this documentary was one of those, that is currently influencing things or holds a position of power in government or holds a position of power in some other way, those are really fascinating to me because it's like, oh... I understand now why this person acts the way they do, why they respond to things the way they do, right? And so this one is called Created Equal. It's Clarence Thomas in his own words. You can find it in a number of places. I heard about it because Amazon actually took it out of their listings and you can't watch it on Amazon anymore, Amazon Prime. And so I was like, oh, well, what's in it? <laughs> if, if, you want me to, if you want me to go and, and get curious about what's in something, yeah, go out of your way to make it uh, less available to me. And I will go find it. It was really well done. And it it basically, it, it's kind of somewhere between an interview and shows like photographs and, and stuff. But anyway, it was it was really interesting just to kind of see how he had evolved from where he grew up dirt poor in Georgia, to becoming a Supreme Court justice, you know, and his journey through different government agencies and stuff like that. I know there are a couple out there on like Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. She's not alive anymore, so she's not on the Supreme Court, but a lot of her thinking and philosophy still influences stuff. And so those are interesting to watch too, right? And I think there are like three of those. But you you kind of get this history. Anyway, I thought the Clarence Thomas one was really well done. So I'm going to pick that. Ian, what are your picks? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll second what you, uh, the uh, the author that you mentioned. I, I actually have uh, quite a few of his books, him and Dale Carnegie and all of them. Mm -hmm. Definitely helped me out a good decade or so ago. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess I guess one thing that I just recently wrapped up. There was this extremely long television series called Closer to Truth that's uh, ran by this old neurologist guy, and he touches everything from like 
quantum physics to philosophy to religion. And you would think that's going to be all like voodoo type of bullshit, but but it's really cool because he interviews a lot of everybody from very well-known physicists to very well-known philosophers of, you know, this and that. And I don't know, and each each episode kind of tackles like one kind of interesting question, but uh Half half of the stuff I never really heard of because I never really attended philosophy courses in college. You know, I was too busy doing other things. <laughs> so, uh, but it was a uh, it was it was really interesting to to kind of learn and and especially coming from that per- person's uh, perspective when he was questioning all these other people. So yeah, definitely. Real quick, Ian, if people want to reach out to you or find what you're working on these days, uh, what are the best places to find what's going on? Yeah. With you? I'm on LinkedIn is probably the only social network that I actually use. I don't really use any Twitter or Facebook, although the company and our project have Twitter. So you can kind of see like what's what's new in the open source and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, the website's nanovms.com is our company. Nanos.org and ops.city are the open source websites. So mm-hmm. go there for all the good latest news. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming, Ian. This was really cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. Yeah, this is a good conversation. I learned a lot. That was fun. Yeah, I'm excited to go try it out now. Toys. All right, folks. (laughs) Till next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.